This is Aya Sharif and welcome to the Sustainability Talk brought to you by Dialectic Institution. Today we will speak about human rights with Ms. Imtithal Aude, who is a human rights officer at the UN Office of the High Commissioner in Geneva. She has national and international experience in research, nonprofit, and policy making. As a refugee herself, she focused her studies, research, and advocacy towards the enhancement of the conditions of marginalized groups. Hello, Imtifal, and it is great having you in the third episode of the Sustainability Talk. Hello, Aya. Thank you so much for having me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Actually, it is the first episode of 2023 as well. Imtifal, I'm going to start with question number one. In 1948, world leaders convened at the UN General Assembly and agreed on a roadmap to guarantee the rights of every individual everywhere. The fruit of the Universal Convention was the development of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Based on your experience, Imtithal, could you please walk us through the fundamentals of this Universal Declaration and the true value behind it? Thank you, Aya, for this very important and insightful question. Um, because when we want to speak about human rights, we can't really but start uh, with, the, with the comprehensive overview of what human rights means and what does it entail. So human rights are universal and inalienable, it's indivisible, interdependent and interrelated and this was in the preamble of the Human Rights Declaration. So what do we mean when we say it's universal? So it's universal because everyone is born with and possesses the same rights regardless of where they live, their gender or race or their religious, cultural or ethnic background. So as mentioned earlier, so I'm a refugee myself, but that doesn't mean that I don't hold the same rights as an American citizen holds or as a Lebanese citizen holds. So I hold the same rights uh, as any other individual. So it is a universal uh, rights that everyone holds. Rights for everyone, everywhere, at any time as well. Exactly, exactly. And second, it's inalienable because people's rights can never be taken away. So no one uh, should take away my rights. And actually, it's because of um, of this that I had this um, kind of awareness. Because when I was studying economics, I had no clue uh, what to do next. And I didn't find anything, even as an internship. But then when I realized that I need to understand why I'm not capable of finding anything because of my status, it's a right that no one should take it from me. It is then when I started digging deep into human rights and becoming passionate about it. And it is, as I said earlier, it's indivisible and interdependent. And it's because all rights, political, civil, social, cultural and economic rights are equal in importance and none can be fully enjoyed without the others. So, for example, I can't, um, in, if, if there is actually like a poor political system, there is corruption at a political level, this will affect my other rights anyhow, because if there's corruption, they uh, they won't be a good education system, there won't be a good health system. And this, in, uh, in conclusion, will affect my other rights, because the political rights are violated. I, I, if I can't vote, then I um, actually, I don't have my uh, political rights, my civil rights. Uh, and this, as I said, it's all connected. One leads to the other. It's a cycle. If one uh, right is violated, other rights will be violated as well. And they apply to all equally and all have the right to participate in decisions that affect their rights. So um, they are upheld by the rule of law and strengthened through legitimate claims uh, to a duty bearers. So, as you said, it's adopted in 1948 and it was after the World War II. 
and it is adopted as a common standard of achievement for peoples and all nations, because we are all born free and equal in dignity and rights, regardless, again, of the nationality, place of residence, gender, national or ethnic origin. So it is in um, in a very uh, summarized way, human rights are uh, for everyone, everywhere, at any time and any cost, under any other any circumstances. And it doesn't mean that if uh, my status as a refugee or as a migrant or as a woman, it will hinder my capability of actually achieving my human rights. It's a human rights for everyone. Thank you very much, Emtithal. It brings me back to the sentence that was very famous amid the COVID-19 pandemic. The world is not safe if not everyone is safe. And then human rights are not safe if not everyone are is, is enjoying them, actually. Thank you so much, Emtithal. Now we're going to delve into question number two relating to the human rights-based approach that's taking the talk in the halls of powers and the talks of leaders. Could you please introduce us to this approach? And what are the five main principles of this rights-based framework? Of course. So human rights-based approach is about turning human rights from purely legal instruments into effective policies and practices. And uh, for example, that we have the Convention on the um, Rights of the Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. So the states that ratified this convention Uh, should adopt it into its laws and amend its laws uh, to be in coherence with the convention that it signed. And that's why, for example, we have UPR, like the Universal Periodic Review, we have monitoring, which I will delve deep just in a second uh, when I talk more about the principles. But also, human rights principles and standards, they provide guidance about what should be done to achieve uh, the human rights and to achieve freedom and to achieve dignity, and at the same time, how they can achieve it. So how can we achieve it? We can't really say that we have the convention, uh, like this numerous conventions, and we have the human rights declaration, but we still kind of uh, face a lot of violations, we still face a lot of challenges, but we can't say it's useless, uh, so we can't really um, blame the system it's more of that how we implemented how we raised the awareness among each other about our rights and how to implement our rights and the correct ways to implement them because we all have to work together so we leave no one behind um, so you asked about the principles so first i'd say it's the participation and for me it's meaningful participation uh, because everyone has the right to participate in decisions which affect their human rights And as I can observe now, um, more and more civil society organizations and even the UN, they're, they're more about the meaningful participation, which is to have uh, the people who are affected by, a, by an issue uh, to, to, to help them participate in solving it and being part of the solution rather than just a beneficiaries that they have, um, they, 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 Like, I don't know how to say it and to put it in words, uh, but for example, me as a refugee, uh, when I want to see a solution, I don't want the solution to come from a Western perspective that doesn't understand my culture and my challenges and, and my potential opportunities. So you mean your participation in the development process? Exactly, exactly. Okay. And so, have your voice offering scalable solutions that are relevant to their national um, context. Exactly, exactly. Because when anyone is speaking about my rights, I should be at the table discussing these rights, you know, because um, like you can't really offer a solution for a young person 
if you're an 80 year old man uh, you have a lot of experiences but then you don't really know exactly the struggles of the young people now so based in the on the context in terms of geography demography and uh, like the behavioral common insights true exactly exactly because no one really knows the challenges and the potential opportunities more than the people affected by it Um, so again, as a refugee, I would definitely uh, like to be put into the table with other policymakers and discuss what might be possible solutions to achieve my rights. So how can we achieve these rights and what should be done to achieve the, these rights? For me, the meaningful and active participation is of essence. Uh, second, we have accountability and accountability requires effective monitoring of compliance with the human rights standards and the achievement of the human rights. And that's why we have the universal periodic review, we have the policies, we have mechanisms, there's the Office of the High Commissioner These for Human Rights. These periodic reviews are conducted by the UN system or by UN system in collaboration with the governments? So it is by the UN system and then the uh, the states, it's, it's, it's within the cycle. And every state, I think every three or four years, they have to submit their report. And this report should be how did they work on their uh, human rights situations in their states and how they adopted uh, the conventions that they have ratified into their laws and how um, if they're violating any and and if they're not, then how have they developed their laws and what are the progress? So, Amtithar, looking at the current status quo and after these crazy three years of like unprecedented events, you think we're moving backward or forward in terms of human rights policy making and formulation? Mm, that's a very nice question. Thank you. Um, from a personal perspective, I believe we're moving forward because we kind of everyone realized awareness. There, yes, there the was, world awareness exactly, is the key. Yeah, exactly. There was like this awareness that was very much needed about leave no one behind. Like it was a hit, so it has um, hindered a lot of developments uh, towards, let's say, the 2030 agenda. It has uh, put us. a bit of forward, um, sorry, backward uh, on what can be achieved and at a human rights and development level. But there was an awareness about their rights, uh, what, shall, what shall be done, uh, how can they consume more of their energy towards a beneficial and, uh, and effective measures. Uh, so I think for human rights, yes, in my own perspective, it, it has put in it a bit forward. Uh, so I was optimistic uh, after the COVID. Okay, and we can and we can see this mobilization that has been taking place, especially on social media. We see our youth advocating for their rights. We see our youth having an in-depth understanding of the UN 2030 agenda and what does it mean to have a sustainable world. And we really do have a smart generation coming up that are voicing their concerns, their ideas. And whenever they're not having a place on the table, they are bringing their folding table and sitting, whether, and they just be like, whether you want to hear us or no, we are here to speak our ideas. And this is something that's really promising for the future. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Because I think also uh, we can give credit a bit for social media, maybe. Yeah. Uh, it has its um, pros and cons, but at the Depends at the on end, how you, exactly, you utilize it. Yeah. Exactly. Like whenever anything is happening, everyone would just have to share a post and then thousands would be reposting it. Uh, so social media has really raised awareness and has really uh, kind of... Um, amplified. Yeah, the... it, it amplified our rights, our, our understanding of what is our rights. So Amtithar, now we're going to be drilling deeper from the second principle, which is accountability, to the third principle, which is? It is non-discrimination and equality. 
So a human rights-based approach means that all forms of discrimination in the realization of rights must be prohibited, prevented, and eliminated. So um, it, is, it should be given priority to the most marginalized and vulnerable situations who face the biggest barriers in realizing their rights, and that's um, basically leave no one behind. So we should also, f we should really give attention to the marginalized populations, to those in the least developed countries. Um, we should give uh, a lot of priority to women, uh, especially in our region, I think, in my perspective. Uh, so it is based on the non-discrimination and equality, which is related to that everyone has the same rights and we should realize it. Actually, Mtifal, if you look at the Arabina region and specifically in Lebanon and in, uh, in the GCC countries such as Qatar, Dubai, uh, Saudi Arabia, I have been working closely with partners from the private sector. And we see that diversity, equity, and inclusion HR strategies are on the rise. And it's very promising to see the private sector also taking the lead and taking its steps further and faster uh, in this sphere. Exactly, I agree. And I'm very, very actually happy to see in even job descriptions, they say if you're uh, a female, you have even a higher chance to get hired. So there are even uh, more into equality and non-discrimination. And it's nice to have this human rights-based approach, actually, even in the private sector. Uh, and it's very promising, I agree. Yeah, and, and now when we talk about recruitment efforts, we see that there is a, a, a new wording or a jargon in the HR world, which is gender-inclusive recruitment. So whenever you're posting a job opening on LinkedIn or any recruitment website, there are some guidelines and frameworks that you need to adhere to to make sure that the recruitment post is gender inclusive. For instance, we don't say chairman, chairperson. We don't say like office man, you know what? Or yes. a salesman, salesperson. So uh, in terms of diversity, equity and inclusion, I think in terms of implementation and in terms of the, the, the engagement of the private sector, the UN system and the academic sector in terms of educating young girls and females, we're coming and moving uh, forward. Of course, of course. Yes, we're definitely moving forward. Uh, and that's really good because, again, maybe we can link it to a wider perspective of awareness. Like there's been a lot of uh, raising awareness about how to respect each other's rights and each other's differences. And, and our region is really seeing a very promising future. But again, as long as they're respecting their rights, we will reach there. There's definitely hope. There's definitely a way to get there and we will get there. But it's good to see that they're starting to adhere to the and human the rights perspective and to include everyone. And, and let us not deny the fact that we have hosted the two biggest events of the world, starting from Dubai. Expo 2020 Dubai, we've seen the UN system uh, present in a prominent way and promoting the SDGs in a very appealing way at the Expo 2020. And looking at the World uh, World Cup in Qatar, we, we saw like amazing harmony in the region and we saw uh, a great adherence to human rights and uh, to the sustainable development goals as well. So yeah, we're moving forward. Our region is proving and unleashing the power of its talents, its abilities, and its competitiveness. Exactly, true. I do agree. And uh, for example, now Qatar will host the conference on the least developed countries to adopt the program of work for the next 10 years. So again, as you said, major events are also happening. When in is this region. conference happening? It's in March. Okay. 
Yeah, so it will be happening in March in Qatar, uh, and yeah, it will gather the state representatives, um, the uh, the civil society academics. So it will host um, people from all over the world to discuss the program of work for the least developed countries for the next 10 years. And let us, uh, since we're talking about Qatar, let us highlight the fact that the Human Rights Committee in Qatar has been doing a great job in terms of ratifying, amending, and developing their policies in a way that's catered to a human rights-based approach. So, Anjad, the, the, the progress has been very uh, prominent and the work being done is very highly appreciated. Yeah, yeah, I do agree because especially on Qatar, I think there has been a lot of debates recently about whether they are adhering to the human rights or not. But again, from a personal perspective, I think that, yeah, they, they have been amending their laws to become actually better. Um, they removed uh, the kafala system. True. And they have, um, uh, they, they enhanced the bargaining power of employees. They have a decent living wage standard. Mm-hmm. So they're like, they're they're stepping into great milestones. Exactly, true, true. It's a, they're a good, I think, example uh, to refer to when, about, uh, when talking about amending the laws. So now we're gonna uh, step into principle number four. Yeah, and uh, just not to take a lot of time, I will speak very much quickly about them. So the fourth one, yeah, uh, it's about empowerment. Uh, and again, it's it's entitled um, that to claim uh, and exercise their rights and freedoms and to understand actually their rights. And it's also linked again to the raising awareness that if I'm a refugee, I should understand what um, rights do I hold? And the final one is about the legality and it's about how the law recognizes the human rights and and to be legally enforceable entitlements. Thank you, Amtithal. And now we're going to step into uh, question number three relating to the UN 2030 agenda and sustainability. So as you may know, and definitely you know, in December 2015, leaders of nations, governments, high UN representatives, business leaders, and policymakers convened at the UN summit in the city of New York and launched the UN 2030 agenda of the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. It is commonly known that forging sustainability is a key to the enjoyment of all human rights. From a research and policy-making perspective, could you please highlight the interplay and the interconnectedness between sustainability and the right to development? Thank you so much, Aya, for bringing right to development. Um, so actually, the Declaration on the Right to Development that has been adopted in 1986 marked a significant evolution in the global understanding of what is development. And as it comes in the Declaration, it is a comprehensive economic, social, cultural and pol- political process which aims at the constant improvement of all well-being of the entire population and, in, and all individuals on the basis of their active, free and meaningful participation in development and in their fair distribution of benefits resulting therefrom. So it is actually, um, it's at a global level, it's a kind of rejection of development understood purely on economic terms. Because when we say development, first thing that comes into our minds is the economic development. No, uh, it's cultural development. Exactly. It's uh, educational development. Yes, but you also think about, uh, let's say, building, and there's new projects, construction. Touristic development. Touristic development. Smart cities is within exactly. the development uh, exactly. agenda. So it's a broad agenda. It's a broad agenda. Uh, but I mean, for the right to development, it's not only on a pu- purely economic trends, but it also focuses on the people. So it's having the people at the center of Educated. development. 
Ha. Yes. Uh, so educated, they're, they're, again, from a human rights-based approach, they, they are meaningful and active participation. Um, and, and it is, in a way, it's not a charity. So development, it shouldn't be viewed as a charity that someone would just, okay, th- th- there's um, a project there to enhance development and, and that's it. No, it is a right. It is a right. There should be duty to cooperate between uh, like the nations and between like locally, between organizations and, and different stakeholders and nationally, regionally and internationally to uh, achieve the right to development because it's perceived as a right. It's my right. The sustainable development, it was defined as development that meets the needs uh, of the present uh, generation without compromising the ability of the future future generations to meet their own needs. So here, if we want to move uh, for the relationship between the right to development and the sustainable development, uh, it, it was specifically recognized for the first time in the Rio Declaration on Environment and Development, and it was then reiterated in the Vienna Declaration and Program of Action. Uh, that was adopted in the World Conference on Human Rights in 1993. And then there's the Millennium Development Goals, the Millennium uh, Declaration, uh, and it was adopted in the 2000s, which they all reaffirmed that making the right to development a reality for everyone is one of the main objectives. So finally, as noted, the 2030 Agenda reaffirms the right to development and is grounded in and informed by the Declaration of the Right to Development. So they are very much... Um, connected. Mm. So here is the right to development, however, must not be viewed or reduced to the 2030 Agenda because the 2030 Agenda was adopted in 2015 and it's, 20, uh, it's time-bound. But the right to development, it's a right. So it's something you have endlessly. Uh, it's a universal right, it's interlinked with other rights uh, and it's not only time-bound. So in other words, is if you want to take SDG 1 relating to no poverty, achieving this goal will enhance the right to economic development. For instance, SDG 4 on quality education, achieving this goal will enhance the right to education. Uh, SDG 8 relating to decent work conditions and economic growth will mm-hmm. lead to mm-hmm. the right to participation. Exactly, so, exactly. So it's a, it's, a, it's a game of interplayness. It's interplayness. If we want to take it uh, through the principles and elements. So for example, there is in the right to development principles and elements, we have people-centered development and we have a human rights-based approach. So, uh, and we also have a state as primary duty better. So these are three principles. They are the SDGs from one to sixteen. They are the um, uh, like the, the SDGs and the tar- and their targets. So they are very interlinked. And if we talk about the participation, equality, and um, non-discrimination, accountability, and transparency, uh, which is a principle and an element for right to development, this has been mentioned in the SDG one, two, four, five, eight, ten, and sixteen, and so on. So the, the list just goes um, goes on and on. Like for example, to promote international peace and security, this is SDG sixteen. But it is at the same time, it's an RTD, uh, which is right to development principle, right to freedom. Exactly. We have good governance and global partnership. Uh, at a national and international dimension, and this is under a lot of the SDGs and targets. So it's very much interrelated and interconnected for sure. Thank you very much, Imtithal. And as a firm believer in the power of storytelling and as a Palestinian refugee, you yourself, can you please tell us about the human rights-based challenges encountered by Palestinian refugees in the Arab MENA region? 
Thank you so much, Aya, for actually um, such an emotional question. <laughs> um, and I think it's very much important and it will link all what we have discussed uh, today into and how I can fit it into this story. So it would be more lively even uh, to apart from the uh, kind of uh, human rights in, <laughs> in scientific terms. Um, so, yeah, I've been so I've grown up to Palestinian parents who've been here, as you know, since the 1948. But yet we don't have a citizenship. And this has, um, of course, a lot of challenges. One of the challenges was, um, which every Palestinian faces, is like to own property, um, to the access to the education system, to access to the health system, access to a lot of rights that even if we have a slight uh, access to it, we come as second and fourth uh, priorities. Like I, I do remember my brother, even for this year, uh, he has to wait until like late September, early October to have to confirm that he has a seat at uh, at the school because they, of course, they have the preferences for all the uh, Lebanese students at first. So we still kind of face these kinds of challenges even after all these years, even after seven decades, which is a kind of a pity. But in terms of the school's issue, it is the private school or a public school? It's a public school. Okay. Uh, and then in terms of a personal story, so again, I when I was raised up, I didn't really uh, have been raised into uh, with a family which is like kind of a wealthy family or like an educated family. So it's kind of uh, I'm the first person in my um, family to go to university. And then I achieved this by um, earning like a scholarship to go and study at AUB. Uh, so I studied economics at the American University of Beirut. Um, and at that time, when I wanted to do an internship, I didn't even get an internship at a bank or, or a consultancy firm because the fact that I'm a Palestinian refugee or my status as a refugee hindered uh, my opportunities, despite being a distinction student, you know? So, so my grades were late 80s, early 90s, but still I didn't have a lot of opportunities. And it is then I started to question, why is this? Like, why my friends, uh, they cured a lot of opportunities, even internship or even jobs, but I couldn't. And, and why is it hindering? I didn't really realize that we had all of these distinctions and discrimination against Palestinian refugees even after all these decades. And we don't really realize this because we assume ourselves as refugees. It's good that that they're keeping us in, in their countries, you know, and uh, um, that they are hosting us. But then I started uh, questioning and of course I was surrounded by inspiring people and supportive people. So I applied then uh, to study human rights at the, at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And honestly, I didn't want to apply uh, because I didn't believe I would get in, uh, you know. But then my friend, uh, my very uh, yeah, de a dear friend, he encouraged me and he helped me through the process. Uh, to apply and I got in but then when even up, when I got accepted I was like okay what shall I do with the acceptance now I can't really afford it but then you know it's it's I, I really don't know how things happen but then I got a scholarship and I went there to study human rights like masters in human rights and afterwards it then COVID hit and uh, and I didn't really get the essence or the answers of the questions that I wanted from the degree that I did so I applied to another master's degree because it was anyways difficult to, to get um, a job during COVID. 
but it's still in my head, it is that I have to uh, have a competitive power. So as a refugee, if I, o- I only have one master's, I think, okay, it's kind of the discrimination will still be there. But if I have two master's, then maybe this will give a good impression. on. So you worked on boosting your, your credentials. <laughs> yes, so no one should. So I want here. So no this again. is how you transformed your challenges into real opportunities. <laughs> yes, yes. Like to work on my uh, abilities and on my skills so that Uh, my status won't be taken as as an answer to give me like to give me a no that we can't really hire you we can't really work for you or, or to get any kind of discrimination um so i worked on my skills on my education and then i got into um the un so i got into i'm now working with the office of the high commissioner for human rights in geneva um so it's kind of the transforming the challenges which I, we face in terms of discrimination there's a lack of opportunity It is actually to keep on applying. Uh, we should keep on uh, pursuing our full potential. We should realize our potential first and foremost. And this is by s- surrounding ourselves with supportive people. With the right people. With the right people, exactly. So I was surrounded with my very two best friends who made me realize my potential. Like I was in London, okay, I was maybe the youngest in my class. And I don't and it's LSE, it was a bit of competitive school, but I didn't really realize it until they made convinced me to to trust my abilities and I'm here because I deserve it and it's because of a reason and they always push me for the best and to to uh, give the best I can have because I already have it but but I have to realize it I have to acknowledge it and to trust my intuition and to trust myself uh, so I think it um, like the personal development and the growth on a personal level goes hand in hand with the professional growth as well Um, so yeah, that's basically uh, kind of my story. That's really a powerful story and I hope this will help the 2023 resolution for many young females, whether they are Palestinian, Lebanese, because we know in the Arabina region and especially in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan and Palestine, people are facing a lot of multifaceted uh, crises and I hope this uh, gloomy cloud will uh, go soon. Emtithal uh, derived from your personal experience and in one sentence, typically in one sentence, what empowering advice would you like to give for Palestinian female refugees? In one sentence. Okay, thanks for emphasizing in one sentence. <laughs> Actually, this is a sentence. <laughs> um, I think I would the, the advice that I would give, especially for Palestinian female refugees, is to break the cycle of being in limited limbo. So that's in one sentence. <laughs> Amazing, thank you. You want to illustrate? Yes, please. I will, <laughs> I will give you the permission. <laughs> thank <then>. you. <laughs> um, so it's basically, um, especially as women, we face a lot of uh, the same cycles, even within like our families. It's a pattern. It's a pattern, exactly. It's a pattern. You go to school. We yeah. get married, we bring kids, True. we start raising True. these kids. Exactly. But if you also maybe think about it, even the traumas that our parents had, uh, it's passed from generation to generation. With a boosted version. <laughs> exactly. So we're not solving it. We're not getting connected to ourselves to solve it or to break the cycle. And we're always afraid to break the cycle. And I believe that um, my advice would be to break the cycle, um, to... to kind of to surround yourself with supportive family and supportive friends and that would help you to break the cycle 
even as women, uh, we need the opportunities and we should convince even if our parents, uh, maybe sometimes because out of fear, uh, they won't really give us the answers that we want to. Like, okay, yeah, go and travel and live alone. And because they haven't been exposed to the world that we are living. Exactly, exactly. So maybe we should help them understand this, that our generation is different. And we have to um, to give the impression that we trust ourselves and then we have to break the cycle of being in liminal limbo. We shouldn't accept our rights to be violated. We shouldn't accept um, to be left outside, not to uh, to participate, not to have any meaningful participation. We should not accept that. We should that. dare to say no as well. Exactly, exactly. Um, and yeah, so that, that's a bit of elaboration otherwise. <laughs> I, just, one I, I just wanted to highlight something uh, derived from your talk on the pattern that uh, females in the Arab region tend to experience. Uh, I've read something like Uh, two weeks ago a quote saying heal before having children mm-hmm. so your children don't have to heal from having you as their parent yes, exactly. and this brings us back to sustainability well-being mm-hmm. the right to well-being the the right to to wellness so thank you very much for highlighting this powerful personal story Emtithal uh, again thank you for the insights thank you for sharing your personal story thank you for the words of empowerment and for our listeners thank you you for your passionate listening subscribe now to the sustainability talk at dialecticinstitution.com to stay in the know and ahead of the curve on key sustainability trends and topics and yes let us stay connected <laughs> <laughs>